0: Alrighty, good morning once again. Uh, Good morning. It's great to be with you once again. uh, If you have a Bible with you, please open it to one of the readings we heard this morning, the Gospel of Luke in Chapter 1. And uh, so we're going to get there this morning, uh, but I'll I'll pre-warn you in advance. It's going to take a long time this morning, like maybe an hour to get there. Okay, the sermon won't be that long. Um, We are beginning our Advent series uh, today. Uh, This is a tradition here at the Rock Church. We have many of them. Uh, But this is a tradition we started many years ago, which is to begin an Advent series so that we can begin to set our hearts in motion towards the real reason for the season, which is the coming of the Son of God into this world 2,022 years ago. Amen? That's why we're doing this. And uh, that's an interesting fact just in itself. I mean, I can just say that. You know, 2,022 years ago from today, approximately, or actually December 25th, according to tradition, Jesus was born. Now you can just throw that out there, right? It's like saying, well, yeah, I remember 2020? Well, that was a year, wasn't it? <laughs> or you could say, well, 2020 is a year that I'd like to forget. Okay, that's how I feel about it. But, when you, again, the grand scheme of things, as I was thinking about this week, we're talking 2,022 years. In the grand scheme of the 4.6 billion years of evolutionary theory, that's a really... Short period of time, is it not? And yet, here's the fact. Here's something that I would just ask you to hold in your heart today and for the future, (laughs) for confidence in who he is and why, is that that is a time in history that is fact for everyone in this world, and it is because of the birth of Jesus Christ. Period. That's why it's 2022 today. I don't know, some of you are looking at me right now going, that's not marvelous or or like incredible. I think it is. I think it's quite remarkable. In all of recorded history, that is is the pivotal moment that the whole world is judged by, is timed by. I think that's a significant factor. And so my question always is, when I ask that or state that is, who decided that, do you think? Who decided that? Not Caesar. (laughs) I heard you. Uh, Okay, so our theme for our series this year is, as you can see on the screen, When God Came Down. So I I started praying as I normally do, which is a good idea, several weeks ago, about this series for this year. And and my prayer was along the basis of, of course we're going to do the readings and of course we're gonna look at the birth of Jesus Christ two thousand and twenty-two years ago. Yes, of course. And we've been doing that every year for at least ten years during Advent series and you know, you can just read the stories, and it's refreshing, and it's a great reminder. But I was praying, and I asked the Holy Spirit, okay, this year, could you help me, show me, so that we could together look at something more about who you are, God. And so I kept praying about that, and I uh, wasn't getting any clear answers until maybe about a week ago, week and a half ago. And uh, the Holy Spirit put it on my heart, and that is, is that Um, I want to look at you for three Sundays in a row, um, the triune God. I I want to look at the Trinity of God with you, um, and I want to look at it from the perspective of seeing how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all active at the Incarnation. Before, obviously, but specifically at that time. And so I want to look at the Trinity in Scripture, and we'll look at it this way. This week, we're going to look at the Father, God the Father. Next Sunday, we'll look at God the Holy Spirit. I know he's not the second person of the, quote, Trinity, but we're going to save the birth of Christ for and Jesus for the last Sunday. So before we dive into the Father's role today, I really love some of the songs that Nick picked in the relation to that. In the incarnation, I think, first of all, we need to consider this whole thing called the Trinity, right? Because some of you Bible students and, or not are going to go, hold on, that word is not in the Bible. true. The reason why we look at it and trust it today is because a, a earnest study of the scripture from page one to the very end makes it pretty clear, rather clear, that God intended for us to see that there is a trinity. There is one God made up of three distinct, unique, and equal persons who are God. And so the scripture makes that clear. In fact, the word Trinity comes from the word, or two words put together, Triunity, unity three in unity. And so it's a great word, as we're going to see as we look at this. And so looking at the Trinity, I'm going to take you all the way back to the beginning, and some of you, this will be maybe just a bare refresher, but I hope it'll take us to the main points that we will see today in our text. And so despite the clear Hebrew, the clear Hebrew in the Old Testament, um, both the triune God and therefore out of that, God the Father was a foreign concept to the people of Israel. They didn't see it. (laughs) They didn't live by it. They, they, They perceived that the Father, that there was a Father. He was the Father of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, or Father Abraham. So they understood fatherhood in that way. But the idea that God was plural or three and one, and that one of the three and one was God the Father was actually foreign to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And I say, despite the Hebrew itself. So look at Genesis verse one, chapter one, verse one with me, where it says this. You all know these words, familiar words. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? And so even right there, in the beginning God, statement of fact, the word God in the Hebrew is the word Elohim, and that word is plural. It's not a singular word, it's a plural word. So again, in the Hebrew, you, you would read that, you would think, and you'd go, well, why is it plural? Well, they didn't really think of it that way. And it goes on, of course, right, right after that, to say, the earth, look at this, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, well, who's that, was hovering over the face of the waters. And so we now know, because of the testimony of the New Testament especially, that we're talking about the Holy Spirit of God. Commentators would, would describe this as that, almost like as if he was being moody. And th- there was chaos so, over the earth that was created. The earth was actually below the seas at that point. And he's moody, and he's, he's just going over the waters. But it's the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. And then we read the famous words, and God said. The first time we have quotation marks in the Bible, let there be light. And again, Truth be told, it's understandable the people of Israel wouldn't have picked that up right away. But as the Old Testament even unfolds, and then, of course, into the New Testament, we can see this is the spoken word. This is the word of God. This is, as we're going to see, Jesus Christ. And this is the point I like to point out, where between creationists and evolutionary beliefs, people who believe in the Big Bang, at this point, we're in complete agreement. Let there be light. A big bang happened. So we learn about the active agent of God here, I want to suggest to you. His name is Jesus, speaking the creation into existence, beginning here. And then all the way through until verse 25, it's speaking things into existence. The word of God, speaking things into existence. And then we arrive at verse 26, where now God the Father, I want you to see, is the one who is speaking. Because he says this, let us, plural, make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Creeping things too. (laughs) So what we have here is we have God the Father speaking to the Son and the Holy Spirit in unity and saying, This is the thing that we need to do next. This is actually why we've done all of the rest. And they have this conversation. In his gospel, the apostle John gives us some insight into this spoken word and the Trinity that we find in Genesis. It's actually called the prologos. And so we have in the beginning in Genesis 1, but also in John 1, we have another in the beginning. And here John is talking in the beginning before all of that. And he writes these words, in the beginning was the word, capitalized in your Bible for reasons, and the word was with God, before the foundation of the world, and the word was God, is God, was God, equal with God. He was in the beginning with God. And then we see these important words, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Let there be, let there be, let there be. And he confirms that this word is Jesus. John does in verse 14 where he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And for the rest of his gospel, he goes on and tells the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus. So from John's word, we understand two things. Basically, I want to show you this morning. First, he confirms that the active agent... In the creation of the world, the one who spoke is the word, is Jesus, who is the one who made all things. But secondly, and equally important, we discover this. We discover a key truth about the Trinity, and that is this. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed before the creation of the world. I feel like I was sharing this with Janice earlier this week, and I was like, honey, this is an epiphany. This is a light bulb moment. She's going, no, no, not really. And and I'm going, well, I don't know. I just want to put that out there to you. Do you realize that? Do, Do you truly understand, do we truly understand that before the creation of the world, God knew himself as the Father, Jesus knew himself as the Son, and the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit. That's an important thing for us to understand, especially when it comes to understanding many, 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 many other teachings in the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, about all kinds of things that we look at regularly through expositional preaching here at the Rock Church about who we are as men and women and relationships. And we look back at this, and we think of God, and people think of God as some ethereal spirit in the sky. The reality is pre the foundation of the world, and until eternity. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So that's an important point. In fact, the truth about who God is, all the creeds actually confirm that. If you read the creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, they actually all confirm that. Maybe again, people read that and they go, God is spirit. Yes, we know that. But also it's important, I want to put that out for you this morning as we go through this, today, next Sunday, and the Sunday after, that we start thinking about that. And then also in relation to everything else that we study. One final attribute of the Godhead or the Trinity for us to know today is that they are, as one systematic theology uh, professor wrote in his systematic theology book, he said, each is fully God, each is fully equal, Equally God and equal with the other, and yet they have distinct roles, and those roles are seen specifically in creation, and in redemption, and in eternal things. Further, we see in Scripture that there is a mutual love. You know, you all know the verse in 1 John: "God is love." Of course, He is, and I like to point it out every time we we look at that. That it's the one distinct factor about our God that is very unique to every other God that exists that people worship. Most other gods are unipersonal, meaning they're they're just one. They're just one being. It's kind of hard to imagine how that one being can know love except in love of self in order to express that love to its creation. The triune God that makes a lot of sense, especially when we see it. (laughs) We see it in the Godhead. There's this mutual respect. Also, listen, mutual subordination and mutual submission in the Godhead. And we all know from what we've been studying in 1 Peter, and yes, I know, other uses of the word submission in the Bible, that takes a lot of love, right? To submit ourselves one to another. So the Son is sent by the Father and willingly comes as an obedient and submissive son to do what? To do the will of his Father. Not his own will, but the will of the Father is why he comes. And the Holy Spirit is likewise, Jesus tells us this in John 14, 15, I believe, that he is going to send, he's going to pray to the Father, and the Father and Jesus are going to send the Holy Spirit into this world to live in us, to redeem us, to regenerate us, and to fill us with his power so we can actually live this Christian life. And the Holy Spirit obediently does what he's to do. He comes into us. The interesting thing about the Holy Spirit is he submits himself even further, and yet he's equal with the Son and with the Father, and he he submits himself in in the way that he, he doesn't point to himself. He never, ever, ever points to himself and says, look at me. I'm the giver of gifts. No, no, don't look at me. No, look at Christ. Everything the Holy Spirit does is points to Christ, points to Christ. That's an important thing that we see. And so, I believe it's important when we look at the Trinity, I'll leave you with this last thought, is that we understand that they are fully equal as God and yet they have roles which they submit to one another and they model that for us. So if you're ever struggling with that, if you're ever struggling with that, men or women, just go, just go look at the Godhead and how they relate to one another. It's beautiful. Really, it is. So I want to show you three things today as we focus on the Father and his role. Hopefully, these three things. Number one, the Father initiates. Number two, the Father promises. And number three, the Father does the sending. So we saw in Genesis 1 that God the Father is the one who initiates creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we believe that was the Father's role to initiate that. I'm suggesting that to you. So it includes creation of all things, and he personally initiates also the conversation between they, Elohim, the Godhead, doesn't he? He, he says, let us make man in our own image to cap their creation by creating us, male and female human beings made in his image. And so when you read the first three chapters of Genesis, it becomes rather clear that he he created ultimately everything for his glory so that we would be able to look out at creation and, and stand, especially on beautiful sunny days like this, even though it's freezing out there. And we can look around and we go, it's just majestic. It's fantastic. If you can't do that, I'll pray for you, okay? Come on. It's just... It's amazing. So he does it all for his glory. But then again, if you read the beginning of the scripture and the first two chapters especially, you have to also see this. They did that for you and for me. To have dominion over, to inhabit, to enjoy. It's an amazing, amazing feature of our God. So in chapter 2, we learn some more details about the creation of Adam, if you read that and, of course, see that. The firstborn of creation, a firstborn man and, yes, son. He's a firstborn son here, although not in the same way that Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father. And then Eve to be his wife are ways in which we see the Father, again, initiating things. He initiates their creation with the Godhead, he leads Adam to discover that He's alone. He doesn't have a partner. He, he leads Adam into that. So he initiates the need in Adam's heart to have a wife, to have someone who's his help meet. And then he initiates the marriage. He brings Eve to Adam, and he initiates the covenant of marriage. Well, then we all know how chapter 3 ends, right? How chapter 3 begins, pardon me, what happens then. We all know that. It's all good, like two chapters. I don't know how many years that was. I'm hoping it was like a billion. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. In chapter 3, we read some things that really concern us, right? And we know what happened. But what's really interesting is, again, God's initiation, how he initiates the situation. Adam and Eve believe the lie of the devil. They believe that. They listen to him, and they believe what he has said. That, that, that God's holding back and that, that if you just eat of this fruit, you'll be just like God. You, you'll know the difference between and know both good and evil. And you'll be like God and you can, you can determine your life any other old way that you want. You don't have to trust him, rely on him. You can be like him. And they believe that lie. And that, of course, at that moment, they die spiritually. Sin and death are introduced into human life and animal life, we believe. And so at that point, again, I always ask the question, listen, honestly, let's be honest. If it was you or I, <laughs> you know, if you had a child, and, I mean, the child was just literally that dismissive of you. <laughs> Some of you are going, <laughs> um, No, but really, that dismissive of you, disrespectful of, of everything you've done. Like, at least for a moment, <laughs> Wouldn't you be angry enough to say, yeah, no more? Leave. Wouldn't you? Not God. Thankfully. The first words we read after that is God goes in the cool of the day, late in the afternoon, goes into the garden, and he and he says, Adam, where are you? Like he doesn't know. (laughs) And they're apparently hiding. I love that. And so rather than, listen, at that point, of course, they they confess, sort of, right? He blames her. She blames the devil. I mean, at that point, rather than blot them off the face of the earth and say, I'm going to start all over because this didn't work the way I was hoping. God does something different at that point. And what he does is this. Number two, he promises something. He makes a promise. The promise is actually to Adam and Eve and to you and I, but he speaks to the servant when he gives the serpent pardon me, when he gives the promise. And it's in chapter three, verse fifteen, where he says to the serpent, I will put enmity, strife, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise, another word would be crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so approximately 4,000 years before Jesus arrives, God makes a promise. It says, there's going to be a seed. You're going to have seed and offspring, but I'm going to make one. I'm going to, I promise you this is going to happen. I don't, I don't know, quite frankly, if Adam and Eve actually heard that. Hopefully they did. They were there because he then makes a few promises to them too about what life is going to be like now. Some people call them curses, but he makes those promises. So the rest of the Old Testament, which, which covers a few thousand years, is, among other things, an ongoing recording of all of the prophecies and promises that God makes to the people of Israel and, and future and past them, whether it's uh, promising them that he will, he will uh, rescue them from exile, from captivity, et cetera, et cetera. It's just filled. That's the whole Old Testament. God's saying, I promise, I promise. I pr- Be faithful, but I promise. Oh, be faithful again, But I promise, and he keeps doing it. He he doesn't stop promising and promising, and he does it through prophecies. And it's quite remarkable. He promises to send, in the end, a Messiah. He promises to send a Savior who will rescue us all from the ultimate evil, which is sin, which began back in Genesis chapter 3. And so that's what all of our Advent readings are about, actually. Every Advent reading, there's some reading from the New Testament, but there's also from the Old Testament, and they're prophecies. They're all promises. A virgin will bear a son. All promises. And then thirdly, the Father sends. So after millennia full of prophecy and promises, we learn another thing about God the Father that is true, that is factual, that you can study and find to be true. And that is, not only does he make hundreds of promises, he keeps every one. 100% of them are kept. Man, if I could keep 50% of my promises, how about you? Yes, honey, I promise. Okay, we're going to stop there. So that's another undeniable fact about God the Father. And it is at this point in history, the sending into, of his son into this world at the very first Christmas where many, many, many of those prophecies and promises come true or in biblical language are fulfilled. And so that's why it's also, it's, it's a crucible, in, it's a, an incredibly important moment in history. It's showing us all these things. Now, before we briefly look at our main text for today, I think we also need to take a moment to think about something called miracles. After all, much of what we've been talking about this morning belongs in the realm of miracles, doesn't it? It really does. And so let me ask the question. What would you say is the greatest miracle of all time? I know some of you say, well, I can tell you a future miracle that would be great, that the Canucks might win the Stanley Cup. before the Toronto Maple Leafs ever win another one. That would be a miracle. I had to get that in there, brother. I'm sorry. I told you. I warned you. No, really, like... What would be the greatest miracle of all time? Well, listen, how about this? I mean, you know, like a little bit of a jab earlier to the evolutionary biologist and, and, and people who believe that. And, but the reality is, is that, and listen, there's good science that supports some of these things. We're not going there specifically this morning. But wouldn't it be true that one of the greatest miracles of all times would be that the universe, the cosmos? It's definitely a miracle. I think Christian and non can go, that's a miracle, Like, random chance, okay, I have a bit of a problem with that, but it's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle, and most people can get their minds around that. And so, yes, we know, thanks to science, that the cosmos, the universe, is actually huge. Janice and I are watching another program recently, I think it was on Netflix, a documentary. It's really good, it was about infinity, right? And it's like, there's some stuff in there where I'm like, okay, okay. Guys, you should read the Bible, but that's okay. There's some really good stuff in it. And the reality is, is this cosmos is huge. It's completely mind-boggling when you actually look at how huge it is. And it's, it's, it's really, and as I say, the, their whole thesis in this uh documentary is that it's also infinite. So it doesn't matter. Numbers, math, they can't really describe it. It, It's so huge and so big and so full of so many galaxies and all the rest of it that it's impossible to actually quantify, but they try. I think it's admirable. I think it's a wonderful study. I think the study of this is pretty admirable and wonderful too. It might be helpful as we look at these things. And so it's infinite, and there's so many galaxies, there's stars, there's planets, rocks, and other debris. And then here we are on, listen, this little, I love this part, this little insignificant planet in one of the smallest and most insignificant galaxies in all of it, and yet we are here observing all of it. Just Just let your mind focus on that for a few minutes. Here we are, we get to look up at that and see it. So that's another miracle then, isn't it? Life. Life. Human life. Animal life. Life. Plant life. All life is an absolute miracle. And none more, of course, than human life. Anyone who's either birthed the baby, ladies, we love you. It's amazing. Unbelievable. Or those of us who've been there and actually experienced it, it's a miracle. Come on. It's an absolute miracle to see a child born and begin to, yes, cry, scream out, but breathe and, and be human. It's, it's an, a miracle thing. Everything about us, then, is also a miracle in some sense. Everything about us, whether it's our brains, our eyes, our hearts, and all of the rest of the miracles of life, they're miracles. Then there's, of course, another level of miracle that we get, we've got to get to to get to the point here. Here. And that is what are called the biblical variety of miracles. And that's where some people are going, really? Really? Well, truth is, from the opening chapters, there are numerous miracles, all coming from the giver of life, the creator of the universe. In the beginning, God, the God who spoke creation into existence, saying, let there be light. There are are too numerous to mention through the whole Old Testament. Again, prophecies and promises Miracles after miracles from the parting of the Red Sea. It just, it's unbelievable what God has done and all of the miracles even there. To Jesus' miracles, the, the changing of water into wine, one of my favorites. Okay, uh, th- There's so many of them that are just remarkable. Feeding of the 5,000, raising Lazarus from the dead, and so on and so on. So now, once again, what's the greatest of them all? Well, let me help you. Some of you might want to narrow it down to say this. Two. That we can choose from. The virgin birth of Jesus, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's a miracle. It is. So as Christians, we believe in miracles. As I was praying about that, and I agree, those are probably the top two, I, I, I feel there's one the Holy Spirit put on my mind and my heart that I want to share with you this morning that won't be, on one of, won't be on any of your top 10 lists, I, 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 I think, but I, I hope you'll insert it after this. King David, he wrote in Psalm 8, and here he is at a point where he's pretty low. You know, he's, he's having some struggles. He's, 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 he's a king, and he's, he's got a heart after God, and yet uh, he, he's failing, he's sinning. He's having problems, and this is the story of his life. But he writes these words in verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. And so here he is, probably sitting down on the ground like the shepherd boy he used to be. And he's looking up at the universe (laughs) like we all do. And he's like, when I look at all of that and how amazing and beautiful that is, then he says these words. What or who is man? What or who am I? that you, the God who created all this, would be mindful of me. That you would care. Seriously? It's one of the most beautiful poems where where he compares the work of God's creation, the universe, and cosmos with you and I, with us. And like many do today, as they worship the creation and not the the, the creator, they look and marvel at the cosmos. But and I don't mean to be harsh here, but oftentimes what happens, we look at that and we worship that and we think that's so wonderful, but the lowly on the street that has actually got a heartbeat and is still breathing, fellow human beings, we disrespect, we dishonor, and we look down on. Save the planet! The homeless, the drug addicted, the poor. The greatest miracle I want to suggest to you that happens at Christmas <laughs> is that God was mindful of us. He was mindful of us. So I propose to you that that is one really important thing about our Heavenly Father. He was indeed. The miracle of Christmas then I propose to you is that God chose, listen, he chose to come down to us, to our level, and he chose to do that even after all that we've done. Not just Adam and Eve, come on. The whole Old Testament, all of history, all of your lives, all of my life. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that he would choose to come to us. So in God's grand design then, and partly because, listen, we are higher than the animals. We were created in his image. He created us for a design purpose and meaning. He comes. And that's the miracle, I believe. And that's what we see in our text for this week and where we'll spend some of our time next week as we read through this text one more time that you heard earlier spoken this morning, I'm going to provide some brief commentary on our way to our conclusion this morning. But as I do that, I want to ask you, suggest to you, watch for and look for the work of God the Father in this text at this moment in history, 2,022 years ago. Luke 1:26 and 27 says, it'll be on screen. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God... From God, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a beloved or betroth, a woman betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the Dave, the house of David, and the virgin 's name was Mary okay. prophecies and promises being fulfilled right there in this verse now we know of course we are told a specific detail here about the sixth month, which refers to another miracle that 's already happened right where Again, the Holy Spirit of God has given a woman who was barren for 90 years, Elizabeth, a child. It's a miracle, and that child will be, oh, prophesied and promised also. John the Baptist, the forerunner of who? The Messiah. We are being told right here. And so promises being fulfilled. And we, so we see in this that Gabriel, this angel that God has chosen, this divine messenger that God has chosen, is pretty busy. On this day, two very important appointments, one with Elizabeth, one with Mary, to fulfill promises. He sent from the very presence of God, the Father, to deliver these messages. Verses 28 to 30. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So this is interesting. This divine messenger is sent to a divinely chosen woman. Some would say 12, 13, 14-year-old young girl, really. Really, she was in that day. And she's chosen by God. A virgin will promise. I promise. And so she is also divinely chosen. I I, got to ask you this question. Was Mary the only virgin in Nazareth in that day? And why Nazareth? Prophecy, promised, fulfilled. But Mary, weren't there many other, was she the best little girl in Sunday school? Well, we don't know, but no, that's not why she was chosen by God. Not at all. It wasn't because she was the best. It was because of grace. The grace of God the Father, which we see twice in the words in this text, favored. That's what that word is. It's You've been blessed with grace by God. You've been chosen by God. And so even in this, we're seeing a hint of the gospel. Mary didn't choose God. She was a faithful Jewish girl, we understand, but she didn't choose. She didn't choose to be the mother of, the Messiah, he chose her. And he gave her the grace to receive it. He gave her the Holy Spirit to help her accomplish it. And we know from the end of her words that she accepted this as from the Lord. So this is the Father's blessing of her with the Holy Spirit. He's blessing her with the Holy Spirit. And then Gabriel announces the promised seed. He says in verses 31 to 33, and behold, you will conceive. By the way, this is a promise. In your room and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Again, we haven't had time. We'll look at a little bit of this more next week and the next. But the prophecies and the promises, one after the other being fulfilled, these chosen points in time, the foreknowledge and the providence of God, this is not an accident. That's why I asked the question earlier. That point in time, 2,022 years ago, who thought of that? That time was chosen before the foundation of the world. That's, that's our God the Father. That's our God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit actively involved in these things. So she gets this promise that was made almost 4,000 years before that the seed of a woman, look at this, will bear the solution to our problem of evil, sin, and death is now being fulfilled with another promise of what will take place in just minutes. Like literally just minutes this is going to be fulfilled. We've now seen God the Father send a messenger who comes to God's divine choice. He's divinely blessed. She's divinely blessed, announcing the divine Son. And then we read, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? (laughs) She knows the truth. So does God. So does the Holy Spirit, obviously. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, without sin. That's why the virgin birth is so important and so true. And he'll be called the Son of God. He will be, in fact, the Son of God. So if you're a woman here today, this is a question you'd be asking, right? I mean, you'd be asking like, okay, God, (laughs) like, how's that going to happen? Mary needed an explanation, not only so that she could explain that to her betrothed, Joseph, who would be pretty much like, really? Which is why, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, he also gets a visitation so that he understands what's going on here. And so, yeah, it's miraculous. It's miraculous, right? What God initiated before the foundation of the world is taking place right here. The Godhead is fully on display throughout this event. What we have here is the miraculous conception. The seed of which is the word of God is planted in Mary's room by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High who is the Holy Spirit. He attaches to Mary's ovary and, listen, the God-man is conceived. That's a great miracle. I would agree, that could be the greatest miracle of all time. It sure ranks up there. So we're going to leave it there for today. But I'll leave you with this thought. My hope is that we will approach Christmas 2022. As we're doing that, we will all discover more about who our God really is, who he truly is, and also what he has done. Because what he has done is what he is still doing and what he will do. And our faith in those things, many times, I believe, needs to be strengthened. So we've seen this morning that we can know about God. We can know about him. We can know that he is and know him as Lord and Savior only because he chooses to reveal himself to us. The opening words of his book of life in the beginning provide no philosophical debate, just a declaration that he is. That, too, was his choice. That was how God, Elohim, wished to introduce himself to us. It's like when Moses asked him, right, at that time, who who do I tell people? You are. Give me your name. Like, give me something here, would you, to take back to them? And he just replied, I am that I am. That's our God. And so, friends, as I reflect on my life personally, and anticipate, once again, their arrival of Jesus this Christmas. I am thankful for many, many things. I know Thanksgiving has passed, both Canadian and American, and we celebrate both because there's turkeys involved. Very thankful man. But one thing I'm most thankful for is that our God, the Father, was mindful of me. He was mindful of us. And so I'm going to encourage you this Christmas to think on that and to be thankful that he was mindful of you and I. And and he was mindful to the point where he completely kept his promises by sending his son into this world for you and for me and for everyone in this world. Pray with me, would you?